everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. Last week, we continued a conversation about kind of the posture of the church going into 2021, continuing a dialogue we started on January 8th about the need for recognizing our own weakness, leaning into the power of God, and last week talking about the faithful presence of the church and culture, the patient ferment, Drew used that term, as the church follows Jesus and practices authentic spirituality, that the ways of Jesus start to work their way into the fabric of culture over time. And actually, it's a great segue, I think, into where we're going this week and next week, talking about eschatology. And that single word is probably eliciting already a number of reactions uh, in you, our listener, depending upon your background. And we're excited to break that down uh, because we've noticed an uptick in people discussing the end times uh, over the last year or so, you know, with all things COVID and everything else, all the the raging uh, storms of our culture. And there's more and more people talking about, you know, the signs of the times, is this the end times and so on and so forth. And we want to discuss what is the actual Christian teaching about the end of time and really emphasize a shifting in our focus. Because unfortunately, a lot of American Christians anyway have been discipled primarily by pop culture, whether it was the Left Behind books or any number of movies that depict this kind of Armageddon uh, type of experience. And very seldom have we found that, that believers are deeply rooted in the biblical teaching on the end times. I read a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn many years ago. He starts off the book talking about how infrequently believers think about the new heavens and the new earth, which is the climax, the, the, the consummation of the entire biblical narrative is this idea of, of Jesus's return to establish a physical presence on a physical earth with his people. And he was making the point that any time you know, you were to go on a trip or have a destination, we would spend time thinking about that destination as opposed to just blindly moving towards it and advocating for believers to think deeply and critically about and, and biblically about where we are headed. And so that's what we want to do here through these two talks this week and next week. You know, some of the ways I've heard people talk this year reminds me of right before the year 2000, there was something that most of us have long since forgot about, but it was the Y2K crisis. And people were convinced, lots of people were convinced, lots of Christians were convinced that there was going to be, based on something to do with computer programming, a collapse of the entire uh, technological infrastructure, and it would propel the world into some kind of apocalyptic scenario, and that that was somehow triggered with the end of time. And it was like this whole thing, and lots of people were really scared. There was lots of conversation about it. It was you know, before there was blogs and people voicing things as much on the internet, but still, even despite that, there was still, it was very much a thing that people were worried about. And I personally knew lots of people that were stockpiling food and water just in case. I actually, in the church I grew up with, I knew at least one family that bought a farm out in the middle of nowhere because they were convinced 
that God had spoken to them about this kind of being the end and they wanted to be prepared for it. And, you know, all this other stuff that was happening. I wasn't here in Waco yet, but somebody told me what Jimmy said, which I thought was was great of really whatever happens, we're still going to be Christian. So like, I don't, you know, it's like, why are Christians, you know, why, why are you going to stockpile food and not share it with your neighbor? Is that really how you want to be if Jesus did come back during that time? Like, wouldn't you just give it all away? You know, shouldn't our emphasis be on Christian living whether it's a time of prosperity or not, you know, so I love that change in narrative, but it's this geopolitical uncertainty that caused people to ask lots of questions. And on the one hand, I I think I get it. You know, it's a time of shaking, and I think that confuses all of us and concerns us at times. But we have this tendency to immediately link that to this must therefore be a sign of the end of time. You know, we start thinking the Lord's return is imminent because surely, you know, this thing happened. And so here, you know, if you're to get anything out of this episode today, I have no idea what it will look like for the Lord to return. I know he's coming back, and that's as far as I know. I don't know the circumstance, and we're going to, in a minute, go through a lot of some of the different types of teachings in church history about that. But I think our emphasis should not be on geopolitical events, trying to guess if those are heralds of the Lord's return, and instead on the Lord himself and the fact that he will return and the kingdom that he will establish. And I think if we could shift you know, the energy and attention, like, like Mick, you just said, on to the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is coming king. Jesus is the one who sets all things right. The reality that we can live at least in part in his kingdom today. If we put the amount of time and energy that goes into people speculating about the events immediately preceding the end times onto that, I think that would do the church a lot of good. And, and I think that would actually set us up well. I think that's a better way for us to understand eschatology. Just a note about the age we live in, it's worth remembering that the year 2020 and probably anybody who's alive listening to this podcast, our era is not an era of bad things. In fact, I think this is one of the wealthiest, most peaceful eras in human history. And if you actually go back, you you look and you read history. Part of our problem is we don't read history. And if you go back and even, even go back 120 years to the generation that endured one world war followed by another pandemic, followed by an economic collapse, followed by another world war, followed by nuclear, the, the prospect of a nuclear annihilation within their lifetime. And, you know, you even go through, if you were going to try to like parse out the events that happened during that time, man, it sure checks a lot of the box that people who talk about the end times of these would be the signs of the end. And it wasn't. We're still here. Or you go back to the 14th century where a third of Europe died in a plague where around that same time, Constantinople, really the capital of Christianity, was overrun by Turkish invaders, where further east, the entire branch of Eastern Christianity that no one talks about anymore was almost completely destroyed by Timor Lane. You know, you can kind of go back and go back to the fall of Rome. There have been plenty of times in human history where there was massive societal collapse at a scale far beyond anything we could even wrap our heads around, and still the Lord didn't return. So he will return someday. And I am convinced of that. And maybe that day is soon. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But if our gaze is on geopolitical events as though that's going to tell us what we need to know, I would challenge all of us. Let's put our gaze back onto Scripture and try to get a better awareness of what God is doing. Whether it's the end of time or not, I think there's a lot, a lot of great material, and we'll hit this over the next few weeks, that'll equip us for how do we live faithfully in a time of societal change, whether that is extreme or minor. Yeah, actually, to that point, Drew, If you go back as recent as 1810, there was only one nation on the planet that had a life expectancy on average greater than 40 years old. Wow. And that was the United Kingdom. 
Every other nation on the planet had an average life expectancy less than 40 years old, and that was just a little over 200 years ago. Incredible progress when you you think of where we're where we've where we are today versus where we've come from. And actually, just a, a plug here: there's a foundation called the Gapminder Foundation that was founded by a Swedish physician named Hans Rosling, and he has since passed away. And his son Ola has taken over. They have a great presentation of data substantiating this notion that actually things globally have gotten systemically better and better and better over the last uh, several centuries, whether you're talking about life expectancy or extreme poverty, infant mortality, gender equality, economic growth, and, and so many other categories. I really appreciate their efforts to let the data speak as opposed to sound bites or intuition to at least set in contrast some of the narrative, or not just some of, much of the narrative that comes our way, which is very sensationalized. So, uh, Drew, take us into how can we, as believers, think about interpreting the end times when we, when we think biblically? Well, as always, we want our grid to be God himself, as revealed in Scripture, by the Spirit, and looking at the witness of the church in, in history, and really make sure that we're anchored in the right, plot, in the right place. So we want to keep we want to keep going back to that, and I, I think what's important for us, all believers, and this has been consistently affirmed by the church, and I believe is very clear in Scripture, is that Jesus is one day going to return to this earth in bodily form, and he is going to initiate a new heaven and a new earth where we, those of us who are in Christ, will dwell with God forever. So let me just pause there for a second. That's an incredibly important truth that I, I doubt that many of you are like shaking your heads at that, like, no, but I mean, have we really meditated on that reality that Jesus is going to come back? He is going to institute the fullness of God's reign and, and baptize all of creation into a new heavens and a new earth. That is our future. That is our end game. That is our vision. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that, that's what we should have our gaze set on and when I think of eschatology, I would love to shift the conversation away from the judgments that may or may not precede that to the fact that he's coming back and that that, that is my, my future. And another way of looking at that is really regardless of when that happens on a cosmic level, I will probably experience that on a personal level sometime within the next 60 or even less years where I will meet him face to face. So even if the Lord tarries and when he returns in bodily form, for me, that will become my reality and not that long of a time frame. And so either way, I need to live in light of that day because that day is coming no matter what. I will not escape it. That's my greatest hope. That's my future. And I think that radically reorients the way that I live today. Yeah, let me just pause you there and just reemphasize that point, that this idea that the return of Jesus, that is the preoccupation of the church throughout the ages. If you look at the writings of Paul and Peter and John, and then in Jesus's own teachings, there was this preoccupation with his return. And it just strikes me as as misguided that we would get preoccupied with the signs of the return of the person that we love, this person that we have committed our lives to. I think of, you know, if my wife was coming back from a trip and I was anticipating her return, it would be foolish and strange to get more preoccupied with the updates on her flight status and other signs like my children melting down because mom's been gone for too long uh, than the actual return of my wife. And, you know, this fits into the broad meta narrative of scripture as we've been talking about from the beginning. 
this idea that that mankind was created to be in fellowship with God, in fellowship with one another, in right stewardship of the earth, and that in Genesis 1 and 2, that this is then mirrored in Revelation 21 and 22, and I know we'll get into this, but just wanted to reemphasize that the return, the imminent return of this person who we love is the preoccupation that at least the biblical writers have uh, and that we should have as followers of Jesus with the end times. We'll get into this more next week, but when you look at the actual teaching of Jesus, so much of it has to do with how will we be when he comes? What, what will we be doing when he comes? That's, that's a very convicting question. You know, whether or not I'm aware of the signs of his return or whether or not I can be fully aware of the signs of his return, what I can do is live faithfully in light of his return. Friends, I, I, I personally would feel great about myself if Christ returned and I was completely caught off guard, but I was faithful. I was doing what he asked me to do. I was active in my faith. I was caring for the poor. I was serving his body. I was living in communion with him. I will, I will hold my head up high on that day if I am faithful. But woe to us if we spend our time guessing the signs of his return, but we're not actually living faithfully as though he's going to return. And that's what concerns me is we've, we've got the order wrong. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting that almost every scholar in Jesus's day misread the signs of the first coming. And I've got to wonder if in our day we might be missing, misreading the signs of his second coming. And a lot of that had to do with their emphasis was on the signs and not the person. And so when our emphasis is on the person, we're going to be okay, even if we get it wrong as far as, you know, the wrong eschatology or view of the millennium or whatever the case may be. If we put the emphasis on the person and, and what that person has invited us into, then we live faithfully in light of God's kingdom, whether he comes back tomorrow or a thousand years from now. At one level, that doesn't change because I'm living in light of the Lord's return. I think that's really clear scripturally, and I don't think that anything we've said up to this point would even be that debated in the history of the church. And I would really encourage us to always double down on what's clear and let's live open-handed with what's not. So let's dive into the actual debates. What's not clear and how do we understand history and our purpose? And there are ramifications for this. Some of the major questions is, how do we interpret the apocalyptic literature in Scripture? And this is a specific type of writing, and you see it most prominently in the book of Revelation. But there's a few other places, Matthew 24 and the parallels in the other synoptic gospels, as well as the book of Daniel. And how do we interpret that? And just from the very get-go, some Bible scholars would interpret it as either entirely or mostly past events. And they might point to the fall of Jerusalem or the Roman conquest or things like that. Nero is emperor, and they might point to past events. Others believe it speaks entirely to future events, and that's a lot of the, the popular literature that's out there would really associate all of those books to being things that haven't happened yet and are things that will happen in the future. And then some see it as a combination of past, future, allegory, they might understand those books to be a little bit more poetic and not necessarily, some might even go so far as to make them entirely metaphors. Others might see them as very real literal things, but the imagery being described is, is poetic. And I had somebody explain it to me one time. It's like a political cartoon where I don't necessarily say that a donkey and an elephant are fighting. That's a very real metaphor to describe political tension that we might interpret differently than how it was written. So you have all of these viewpoints that are out there, and I find the more I dive into it, it's hard to land fully in one camp because as you read, I think there is an element of mystery here where I'm anybody that's too clear on exactly what everything means always scares me a little bit. 
But the greatest question, typically, and this is how most people refer to eschatology, is how to interpret the thousand years that's referenced in Revelation chapter 20, or the millennium. And if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, you may want to just skim through it to even understand, but it's essentially describing these series of judgments in layers of seven. There's seven seals that start off, and there's seven trumpets and seven bowls, and the judgments get progressively worse with other kind of wild imagery. It's actually a really fun book to read if you're looking for something to just be engaging. And it culminates, you get to Revelation chapter 20 in the victory of the Lord, where God establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And if you recall back to the Gospels, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. So really what we're talking about is what does it mean for God's kingdom to come to earth? And there are three major views of Christians of how they have interpreted this and really how you interpret this then becomes a framework for how you interpret a lot of other things in the book of Revelation. Because do we believe that God's kingdom as talked about in Revelation is a future event that has not yet happened yet that will happen on the earth prior to the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a view called premillennialism, and we'll get to that in a minute. Do you believe that the book of Revelation is allegorical to describe the age of the church that we're living in now? And it's, it's a reality today, but ultimately Christ will return, and that's when the new heavens and the earth will take place. Or is God's uh, millennial kingdom, is that something that will actually happen before Christ's return? And it's something that we make happen as the church, and society progressively gets better and better and better. So there's three views, premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. And these are the three common views. Um, so I'm going to go through all three of them. I want to start, though, a, a great resource of somebody that I've read from a lot is a, a man named Sam Storms. And you can go to his website, I believe it's samstorms.org, or just uh, Google his name. He's an awesome guy. So you can go to his website and go to uh, the article section, and he has a link called Eschatology, and it's like 50 articles. But he'll walk through almost any of these passages of Scripture that we reference. He's a strong believer, charismatic believer, and I think he does a good job fairly articulating from a square, you know, very biblically uh, grounded perspective, and it's been helpful for me. So let's start off with premillennial, because I, I think a lot of Christians don't even realize there are other alternatives to premillennial, because this one is so common. Um, but what might be actually surprising for a lot of us is that this is not the most common view of the church in history. In fact, it's probably last 200 years or so is where this one really took off, and it started in North America. And so even, even though for us, we almost can't think of it differently because this is so ingrained, this is not something that has been the consistent witness of the church. It could be how it is, um, but this would definitely be debated and is debated. What it means is that the millennium, the reign of God, pre-millennium means Christ is going to come back and there's going to be a series of judgments on the earth. Christ will return. Then Christ will establish the, his thousand-year reign, literal reign, on earth. At the end of that thousand-year reign, then he'll come back again and that will be the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And so how this view tends to interpret the rest of Revelation is that virtually all of Revelation refer to future events. So there will be a seven-year period of tribulation. And then there's, even within this view, there's question about when do believers actually join with Christ? Is there a rapture before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? 
when the church joins with Jesus. I mean, it gets very complicated. But the high points are that the plagues in the book of Revelation are literal events that will happen in a seven-year time period, and that will immediately precede the coming of the Lord, after which he's going to establish his kingdom. And, you know, I think within this view, I think there's some good points. I appreciate that it stresses the immediate or the imminent return of Christ. And almost every revival movement in history has lived with this reality that Christ is coming back. And so I think this this perspective, uh, for, for whatever reason, tends to be associated with people who really live with that reality that this is a real thing that's going to happen. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember. I think it helps because you understand that God's kingdom on earth will not be established until Christ comes and establishes it. I think it does help not to put our hope too much in this world. We recognize there's going to be judgments in this world where the world itself will be shaken and everything in this world is transient. Therefore, our hope needs to be in eternity. And I really appreciate that. And I would say it errs on the side of literally interpreting prophecy and scripture, which I think is a good place to err. I don't know that it, it, I I have some questions about the interpretation because I think it gets it wrong at certain places, but I do appreciate that it avoids the tendency that we can fall into where everything becomes allegorical which I think is a dangerous way to interpret scripture. A downside, in my opinion, of uh, premillennialism, or a couple of them. One is why would we invest in this world if it's all just going to burn? And, you know, a lot of times premillennialists kind of have this assumption that Christ is going to come back within their generation or their lifetime. And so why do you plant trees? Like, what's the point? Or why do you get a college degree? Why do you invest in theology? Why do you, why do, you do any of it? Because if Christ is coming back soon, None of that really matters anyway. Yeah, why I, start a business? Why, yeah, why invest in a 401k? Create or, art. Like, why do any of it? I, I think that obviously can get dangerous. And there was groups like this in the 1850s. And for those of us now, I'm, I'm bummed out that they didn't do some of those things. I wish they would have created art that we could still have. I wish they would have written a little more theology. I wish they, you know, so it's in a way, if you, if you embrace this too far, you end up robbing future generations of the church if the Lord tarries and overly emphasizing the immediate as opposed to investing in the future. And we got to remember a lot of the illustration Jesus gives in Scripture about his kingdom is agriculture. I mean, these are things that require sowing and tending, and they take time. And I think that's been a downside. Uh, another big downside is I think this view tends to limit the relevance of the book of Revelation entirely to the future. And so it's almost like the book of Revelation is for some generation in the future when there's a one world government and all these bad things happen. And I actually think the book of Revelation is very relevant today, and it has nothing to do with whether or not we're in the end times or not. I have no idea. But either way, so much of what the book is talking about, there's powerful truths for us to navigate our culture that we miss out on if we, if we only utilize this book when we talk about the end of time. You know, it might also betray an idea that what we do here on earth doesn't translate into eternity. This, there's this notion that the only thing that we can take with us is souls. I've heard pastors say something to that effect over the years that, you know, what does it mean to get an education, create art, start a business, that if, that if it doesn't translate then into eternity, if the only thing that matters is, you know, saving souls and, and of course, salvation and reconciling people to God is... I think a the, an activity that's first and foremost in the mind of the church for many reasons, but there's probably a topic we can get into later, but this dichotomizing of the activities that we engage in right in the here and now versus the imminent return of Jesus that 
you know, that's going to destroy the world with fire. Everything's going to burn. So what's the point of, in, of investing in this life? Uh, this viewpoint might start to cloud some of the rest of the teachings of the scriptures on the meaning of this life here and now. Yeah, it's a great point, Mick. You know, I mean, you could, just to make sure we're being fair, I think you could be a premillennialist and maybe assign like the Lord's return is in the future, you know, and just not not worry as much as when it's going to happen. But how it gets interpreted, a lot of what I see tends to be people getting on the news and looking for developments that happen geopolitically and trying to associate it with the book of Revelation. And, you know, that being where all the energy goes and away from what does it mean to live in God's kingdom now? And how do we interpret the book of Revelation or other parts of scripture to help shed light on how we're supposed to live in the clash of kingdoms, whether this is the ultimate clash of kingdoms or just a normal ongoing part of what's been occurring for the last 2,000 years as we await Christ's return. Okay, that's premillennialism and definitely the most common in the Pentecostal evangelical worlds where most of us live. Uh, Another view that you don't hear as much about anymore, but this is actually the majority view of the first generations of Christians in the United States, and that is interesting. So guys like Jonathan Edwards, they were staunch uh, post-millennialists, and you know, if you take the word millennial, post-millennial means that Christ will return at the end of his thousand-year reign on earth. And what a post-millennial teaches is that Christians are building God's perfect kingdom on earth. And eventually there will be this tipping point when God's kingdom is completely established on earth in every area of society, everything is under the reign of God. And that will happen for a thousand years where God's kingdom will be fully established. And then at the end of that, there might be a time of tribulation or not, and then Christ will return in bodily form. So it's post, after the millennium that that takes place. For those who hold to this view, they would interpret most of the book of Revelation to the past. So they would go back through and they would see the events that happened in Revelation. They would see the events that happened in Matthew 24 as predominantly surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in the first century church. Then what they would see is that they are inheriting the legacy of seeing God's kingdom come and they're building it and they're establishing it. And so that was actually uh, at least one branch of the people who were involved in founding our nation. They thought that they were building God's perfect kingdom on this earth and that that was going to be one of the signs of God's eventual return because his kingdom was being established on the, on the earth. And so where premillennialism is pessimistic about the future, these guys are wildly optimistic about the future. Um, they, they believe that eventually the church would take over, the kingdom would take over all aspects of society. As you can imagine, after the events of the 20th century, and again, everything we've seen in the last, in the years since, this view is very much a minority today. That optimism, that kind of enlightenment era optimism is fairly well squashed, and world wars, nuclear weapons, I don't think there's that many people out there who see there being this growth trajectory into this perfect kingdom. Um, Interestingly, though, there is in the charismatic world a group, um, Kingdom Now Theology or Dominion Theology, that does hold to some of this, and they really see it as their mandate to be part of bringing God's kingdom on the earth. Or even if they don't see it from a um, social standpoint, they might, just, they, they might just lean into the belief that God's kingdom is here and now. And so even if it just applies to miracles and signs and wonders or something else, there is that thread that's still active. But it's harder to find today. There's not as many prominent voices on this side of it. Uh, on the positive side of postmillennialism is that it does encourage us to press into the reality of the kingdom and if we were going to say with premillennialism, it really emphasizes the not yet of the kingdom, that God's kingdom has not yet come and really tends to have us be this remnant that's waiting for God's kingdom to come and kind of trying to hunker down and wait. 
postmillennialism is going to emphasize that God's kingdom has come. And so it's going to lead us into the belief that we can actually actively be a part of God building and guiding his kingdom on earth today. And so all the things that could be a problem with premillennialism, they become very different postmillennialism. In this sense, you know, you would absolutely start schools and plant trees because you're building God's kingdom on earth. You've got to do all of those things. And so there's a lot of energy towards that. And from a charismatic perspective, we really, you, you would emphasize that the kingdom has come. So you're going to pray for the sick because you have spiritual power and you're going to expect them to be healed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think there's a big downside to postmillennialism, and I think this is why it's really retreated, is that it's very easy to subtly place hope in human power. And what starts to happen from my perspective is when you see God's kingdom being established in fullness on this earth prior to the return of Christ, then it's natural to say, I want to I speed it along. And we start really, before you know it, it could look so many different forms. We start leaning on our own strength and abilities to make that happen on behalf of God. And for some groups, that can be very overt, where you're actually trying to seize political power. For other groups, maybe it's not like that, but still the emphasis is on me building God's kingdom on his behalf rather than God building his kingdom and I partner with him. What's pretty fascinating is if you were to look in America today, agnostic progressivism. So a lot of what you look at, you know, whatever you would politically identify as progressivism, uh, most of that actually had its roots in Christian post-millennial theology. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense that we are building God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom is a place of equality, is a place of provision, is a, you know, you kind of go through the list. And what started to happen is these same groups gradually stopped believing in God, or at least stopped believing in the centrality of God towards his kingdom, but they kept the ideal of the kingdom. And so they're progressing towards that kingdom being established on the earth. You know, so you actually see this in a lot of different places, kind of the, even though postmillennialism itself is hard to spot, the idea behind it is still pretty prevalent and in places that are very unlikely or that you might not typically associate with each other. But really anything that's saying, there's some type of utopia that's possible on this earth that we are building in the name of God. That has its, its roots in postmillennialism. And, and like I said, I think the, the fatal flaw or the, at least the, the big weakness in this is that it tends to be reliant on human power, which I think we've seen over and over again. And we've talked about on this podcast over and over again. Um, that doesn't seem to be the right way to see that happen. So premillennialism, Drew, is this idea that Jesus is returning before the thousand-year reign. And generally speaking, people are you know, for lack of better words, maybe pessimistic about the future and the state of the world will only decline from here. Whereas post-millennialism, a more prevalent viewpoint, uh, at least in North America before pre-millennialism, post-millennialism would say that uh, Jesus is returning after the millennium and that the arc of history is towards the establishing of God's kingdom on earth. And so it would be more optimistic about the state of affairs only getting better as the church establishes God's kingdom on the earth, and that that was largely disrupted in the 20th century, but has seeded a lot of what we might think of as some of this progressive activism that's rooted now in secular ideology. So why don't you take us into the last viewpoint on millennialism to wrap up this episode? So amillennialism is the most common and historical view, and the reason it says amillennial is it's, it's not... It's not interpreting a millennium like where it's a literal thousand years on the earth where Christ either returns right before or right after, but instead 
the thousand years is a metaphor for the entire age between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. So it's not meant to be interpreted as a literal thousand years, but instead as a significant period of time, and it's the age of the church. What this would look at then is it would go back and look at the book of Revelation and the apocalyptic literature as describing the clash of kingdoms. And so the Antichrist is not just some future figure, but is actually a demonic spirit on the earth today. And it might look at the book of, of Daniel. You have this really crazy dream where Daniel sees these beasts coming out of the sea that describe empires. They describe Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. And if you look in Revelation, it's that same image, but they're, they're all woven together in one beast. And it's really wild and crazy, hard to wrap your head around. But the point is, it's the kingdoms of this world in opposition to the kingdom of God. And that's what Revelation is describing, is it's describing the clash of kingdoms. And in the end, the message of the book is that God wins. And don't ally yourself. Don't join forces with the world because the world itself is going to fade. Babylon will fall. Don't put your hope there. Put your hope in the kingdom that is to come. And even if that's the path of martyrdom, it's worth it because God conquers. And so that, in a nutshell, is amillennialism. It can, and it can go, you know, you have a lot of variety on this one. There are some people that tend to interpret everything metaphorically. And I think that's a real downside to this view is that if you aren't careful, you can kind of read a metaphor into everything and lose sight of the reality that Christ is going to return or some of the aspects like that. Or you can go the other way. You can even, I, I would personally lean towards this viewpoint myself, but I don't think it means there's not going to be some final judgment. And I don't, you know, who knows, but I would look at the passage Jesus says of the wheat and the tares growing up together, where you very well could see this clash of kingdoms reaching this climatic moment at the end of time where you kind of have the fullness of one and the fullness of the other. We don't really know, but I think this view allows you to draw on some of the strengths of the other two. But ultimately, I don't know. You know, I, maybe it does look exactly like how Lindsay or some of the other ones said and left behind. I think those authors themselves would say they were just trying to exercise their imagination to cause us to think, not trying to write theology. Maybe it does look like that, but I think amillennialism might be able to say it also could be the Lord returns in a time of prosperity where, you know, two people are out in the field in agriculture, working their business, focused on the concerns of this world, and suddenly out of the blue, when it's unexpected, Christ returns. I would have to question, are we ready for that as well? Not just a time of crisis, but a time of wealth. Being faithful looks different in both of those two eras. And so amillennialism, I think, gives us some space to apply this um, in different types of eras and times. And so, uh, you know, if somebody were to really press me, my view on the end time, in this label at least, um, I, my favorite phrase is pan-millennialism, that it's all going to pan out in the end. And I think the point of that, it's, it's obviously snarky, but the point of that is we don't really know, and we don't know exactly. I think there's a lot of good interpretation we can do, and we can dive into some of it. But I think there's an element here of mystery that's actually pretty explicit in Scripture that we'll know when it happens when Christ returns. It's going to be a, le- a real, literal event that we can hope in, but we're not necessarily going to know all the parts to it leading up to it. And so, and that's our hope today, is it shifts our emphasis then off of speculation and on instead to how do we live in light of the fact that Christ is coming. And I, and I think on a pastoral perspective, I, I want to live in light of that reality as something that's imminent. It's soon. It's going to happen but I also want to build as though that's going to be in the future. And so I don't want to rush things and not invest in the long term and be the faithful gardener tending the kingdom of God as best I can on earth. I want to do all the things we talked about earlier, 
living in this mindset that Christ is coming and he is coming soon. And at least for me, I'm going to stand before him before too long. So I want that to motivate me. I want that to drive me. I want eternity to be in my heart. But I don't want to take that too far to where I start guessing based on something I read on the news, start living in fear and withdrawing from being active and in, in being a part of the kingdom in the world today. So in a way, you can take all three perspectives. I think there's something we can learn from it, of living in light of eternity, investing in the kingdom of God, and then ultimately recognizing there's a clash of kingdoms in this world that we're part of the story. We are part of the story of the book of Revelation. We just don't know what part of the story, how far along we are. Are we the last chapter before the end, or are we in the middle somewhere? I have no idea, but I do know that clash of kingdoms is going on right now today. I do know I'm going to stand before God before too long. I do know eternity is my home, and if I can focus my perspective on that, then all of a sudden I think eschatology really helps us make sense of our world. And if all this makes your head spin a little bit, you're not alone. I remember hearing a gentleman named Dr. Mark Sharona, who is an eschatologist. It's what he Who has. knew? That was a thing. Yeah, who knew? Uh, Mark Sharona knows, because he said that he has 5,000 books in his library, 3,000 of which are on the end times. He said he's read them all. And he said after reading 3,000 books on the end times, he knows one thing for certain, and that is that Jesus will return for his bride. He said everything else is open to some level of speculation, in his opinion. He has his opinions, but... He can only be certain of one thing, and I think we can take great comfort from that. And so maybe just to recap or to, again, reemphasize our preoccupation as believers here in 2021, in light of everything that's going on geopolitically, is not so much with the signs of the times, but that Jesus will return. Not the signs of when he'll return, but that he is going to return, that that is our preoccupation. And, And next week we'll look at Uh, The parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, which is right on the heels of Matthew 24 and some of that apocalyptic literature. And you'll see that the, the parables in Matthew 25 all deal with our posture towards the Lord, being watchful, being faithful in our stewardship of what he's given us, being compassionate to the least of these. The way you started, Drew, talking about how we are living will be what we are judged by, not did we predict the date correctly. Well, thanks for hanging with us through a meaty episode on eschatology. Again, we will pick this back up next week, shifting the emphasis more to how then shall we live? And we will catch you next time on Ideology.